Everybody else, if you want to open up to Exodus chapter 17, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 17 tonight. So, if you're just joining us, uh, if you haven't been around for a little while, uh, Salt and Light is walking through the book of Exodus. And so we have passed the point where God brought his people out of Egypt, and they last week we saw them wandering through uh, the desert. And so that's where we are going to find Israel tonight. But... As we get into it, you may remember a long, long time ago was the year 2020. Um, And in 2020, and part of why it feels so darn long ago is just it brought with it just this kind of rampant division, both across our culture and, and really a lot of cultures in the world. And it seemed like no matter the topic, all of society was caught in this like lose lose situation. Everybody was just divided. And frankly, it didn't look any better in the church. It didn't look any better among followers of Jesus as it did outside the church. And whether it was about politics or power dynamics or justice or gender or race and ethnicity or public health or even what it means to love God and neighbor and on and on and on and on we can go. Like this division was just everywhere. And in in the height of it, it was like, early fall 2020, when it just seemed like the wheels were coming off on every relationship that had ever been created, um, this, this meme went around the internet, and I wish I had saved it, um, because it like perfectly but jokingly summarized the polarization. The meme said, is it a thing? Then it's wrong. And it's just like, man, that is how everything feels. If it's a thing, if it's an opinion, if it's a, a, a stance, if it's, any, if it's a thing, then to somebody, it's wrong. But if we're honest, if we're really honest, what we saw over the last couple of years in this division, it wasn't unique. It, it was just an overt picture, an overt microcosm of what really happens in our hearts all the time. And throughout all of history, people have been divided. Throughout all of history, a lot of folks think that we are right. And sometimes that if I think I'm right, that I alone am right. Is that fair? Um, a lot of folks, and, and we all find ourselves in this position, we, we find ourselves unwilling at times to hear any other viewpoint. And frankly, if I can talk to followers of Jesus, like for us, our rejection of other people's viewpoints or other people's advice often stems from a misinterpretation of one of Jesus' commands. Anyone know what command I'm talking about? Judge not, lest you be judged. It's Matthew 6.1. It's in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It says, judge not lest you be judged. And we, and we can kind of use that as like a trump card. No one can disagree. No one can offer me advice. No one can tell me I'm wrong. No one can tell me I'm sinful. No one can tell me I'm unwise because you know what? Judge not lest you be judged. And to be clear, that's not what that verse means. Okay. In fact, even like two, two verses later, Jesus says, hey, pull the speck out of your brother's eye. Like there is a help correct, help guide thing. So it can't, it can't mean what we, what we use it as often. But even if it doesn't mean the way we use it, think of, think of some time that somebody challenged something you did or something you said. Like, what's your gut response when that happens? Even if you soften it or even if you don't say it out loud, hmm, what's, what's your gut response when that happens? I really appreciate the advice you gave, especially because I didn't ask for it. I, I will immediately, gladly change course. No, like that's, that is not our gut response, right? More, it may be what we say, sickeningly sweet and passive aggressively, but, but like our gut response is more often, you say I'm wrong, no, you're wrong. Isn't that more common? 
You're not nodding. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> That's my comment. But today we're in chapter 17 and 18 of the book of Exodus. And get ready because these chapters are about judgment. Um, for Old Testament Israel, for us today, like we've got to understand that there is a place for judgment in our own lives and there is a place for judgment in our life together. And so these chapters kind of show us how godly judgment works. And just as an overview, they show us that, that one, godly judgment is based on God's standard, not ours. Godly judgment is based on God's standard, not ours. But godly judgment is often carried out through God's people. God's judgment is carried out through God's people. And so we're going to see three things um, in this text. First, we're going to see that through people, God judges those who oppose his people. Then we're going to see that through people, God judges those who oppose his holiness. And we're going to see that both of these foreshadow God's full and final judgment, which we know to be true in Jesus. So that's where we're headed today as we talk about judgment. So, Father, would you give us ears to hear? Would you even do uh, what you kind of had to do with me in my heart these last couple weeks as I've prepped for this, of, of help me put aside my desires even on this topic and put aside my self-righteousness. And God, would you help us hear you and would you change us through this text? Would your spirit do that? We can't do it alone. It's in your son's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to start in chapter 17, verse 8, which kind of picks up in the middle of a chapter. Uh, what do you remember from last week? If you remember from, from Exodus chapter uh, 15 and 16 and 17. If you were here, if you read it this past week, past couple weeks, which I'll talk about. Food. Bread. Bread, yeah. God providing. Whiners. Yeah, yeah. How, how we are all whiners. Yeah, we don't like to be judged, as we're talking about today. We all whine about things. That's last week. So it's good news. Glad you all came. Anything else? Tests. Tests. Yeah. Who are we going to trust? Right? Good. And if you, if you read then coming into this week, starting in the midway of chapter 17 through the verse 18, did anything, or chapter 18, did anything stand out to you? Anything new? Anything hard? All right, then I'll keep on moving. First aspect of judgment we see in Exodus 17 is that God judges those who oppose his people. His people are Israel. We've already seen uh, in the book of Exodus with Pharaoh and Egypt that God judges people who oppose his people. But God's going to judge again. This time he's going to judge a different nation. So Exodus 17, starting in verse 8, it'll be up on the screen if you need it. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. So Joshua did as Moses told him. And he fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. All right, that's where we're going to stop. So a couple things just as we jump in. First, there's a new character we're meeting named Joshua. He's going to be important through the rest of this book of Exodus. In fact, God promised that his people would go into the promised land, but Moses is not going to be the one to lead them into that promised land. Joshua is going to be the one to take the next generation of God's people into the promised land. Second thing, though, you've got to see is that Israel is going to fight a war here. And frankly, for some of us, like, that's a hard truth to swallow. Like Some views of God, some veins of Christianity, love, would love it if, if some of this stuff we're going to see in the coming chapters weren't, wasn't in the Bible. We don't like the idea of violence. We don't like the idea of God standing up for violence. 
Some, some of it's a misinterpretation of Jesus as kind of the, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, very effeminate kind of pacifist all the time kind of thing. And some of it's just like we don't, we, we don't want violence to happen. Even in the Ten Commandments, which we'll see next week, one of them is don't murder. So how do we reconcile this? And the answer is that as hard as this may be for us, murdering is, is different than killing. Obviously, murdering is a way to kill, but, but the, the category of kill, the category of violence, is bigger than murder. Murder is aggressive. aggressive. It's unjust. It's, it's premeditated. Broadening out, though, the concept of killing and just war, it, it's something bigger here. So in verse 8, who, who's the aggressor in this scene? Amalek. What's Israel's posture in this scene? They're, they're on the defensive. They're the ones being attacked. And, and Israel, just for the record, is not always on the defense in Old Testament conflict, but, but it's important to see this in the book of Exodus as God brings his people out of slavery, as he brings them out of one form of oppression. Earlier, God judged Pharaoh and Egypt for oppressing his people. Here, God judges Amalek for attacking his people. If we were to flip over a couple books, Deuteronomy 25 reflects on this event and even says that Amalek attacked, quote, when Israel was faint and weary. They attacked when Israel was faint and weary. Here's what you need to see. God fights for the vulnerable. God judges people who oppose his people. And you know what? God fights for the, for the vulnerable and God judges people who oppose his people through his people. How's God fighting for his people? He's using his people to do it. He's empowering his people to do it. How's God fighting for the vulnerable? He's giving them strength. During, during the last couple of years, we've watched uh, one of the like, Planet Earth documentaries with our kids. Um, and, and there's always the one part, no matter if it's oceans or mountains or whatever. Like There's the, the part. It's always about two-thirds of the way through because they've got their like, rhythm down. They know when people are going to get bored. And that's when they introduce the apex predator. Right? Like, are you about to Netflix this, turn it off? No, here's a, here's a cougar, right? Here it comes. And, and if you watch, like, it's always, like, sly, sl- slinking around the crowd kind of thing. And then all at once, like, the music picks up and the action goes and it just pounces. But does it ever go for the strongest and biggest victim? Or what's it always do? It always goes for the weak. It always goes for the vulnerable. And every time we're watching this with our kids... We're like, is this an eye-covering kind of scene? Is it not an eye-covering kind of scene? We're, like, we're, we're there ready, and the difference, the difference in whether Travis's eyes get covered or not is, does the strongest, weakest one in the herd step in and help? If so, that's a win for the herd. If not, that's my kid's eyes get covered, right? It's not going to be pretty on the screen. That's what's happening here. Israel's fighting. But is it Israel's strength that defeats Amalek? No, Israel is is weak and vulnerable. They're faint and weary, according to Deuteronomy. Instead, what is happening? Look at verse 11. Whenever Moses held up his hand, so Joshua and the, the, the folks go in to fight, Aaron and Moses and Hur go up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. 
But Moses' hands, as we might imagine, grew weary, and so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And so Moses' hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Verse 13 says Joshua defeated Amalek, but whose power defeated the enemy? It's not Israel. They're they're without strength and ability. They're faint and weary. It's not Moses. He couldn't even stand. He's tired. He's weary. He had to have folks hold up his hand. But Moses' raised arms were a display of their reliance on God and a reliance on God's power. At the end of chapter 17, Israel knows that it was God who won the victory. In verse 15, you can look down there, it said, Moses built an altar and he named the altar, the Lord is my banner, the one, the, the one who, who won the day, the, the one who charged us into battle. He's the banner. God is the power. God is the fight. God is the victory. Here's the point. Here's why I'm trying to dive us deep into this, is that God judges those who oppose his people, but he carries out that judgment through his people. Last week, we saw God prove his power over the natural world. He provided everything that Israel needed as they left their old lives. Today, we see God prove his power over the supernatural world. He's protecting his people as they left everything that they knew in their old lives. Because the question that Israel is asking as they leave Egypt, we're going to see them ask this over and over and over again. The question they're asking is, is this new God better than our old master? Is this new God better than our old master? And by judging Israel's enemies, God is saying, I am for my people. I am everything you need. And so we see this this praise of God echoed again in the first half of chapter 18. Moses reunites with his family. And then his father-in-law's name is Jethro. And, And Jethro is not an Israelite, but he's a priest. He's a priest, most likely, of Israel's God as a reminder that God, even though he had a people at this time, he's always been for the nations. And he brought even people outside of Israel in to worship him and even became priests. But when Moses had gone to Pharaoh, he sent his wife and his sons to to Jethro for their protection. Now that Moses is out of Egypt, now that Moses is safe, Jethro brings Moses' family to see him. And as they talk, Moses and Jethro celebrate God's judgment over Egypt. There's adults out there, right? We're good? Okay. All right, so they're, they're going to celebrate God's judgment over Egypt. That's where we were. Um, so uh, Exodus 18, verse 8, says this. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced at all the good that God had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians. It's a British author named Christopher Wright who says that in these verses, we see a foreshadowing of the gospel. God delivers his people from injustice. God delivers his people from the enemy. God delivers his people from death, and it's all God's work. And we get to celebrate and rejoice. 
And the next verse is Moses and Jethro together praise God and they make sacrifices of thanks and they hold this feast to celebrate God's goodness. But what they're celebrating is God's judgment. And y'all, this is just, it's so important for us today. It's not popular, but it is important for us today to recognize that among all the other things that God is, we just had kids celebrate things about God that they see in their moms. We just had moms celebrate things about God that he's taught them through motherhood. Among all those right and good things that God is, God is also still a righteous judge. God is still the one to objectively define and name evil and call it evil. And he's still the one to objectively define injustice and call it injustice. God is right and good. And and while we want to be the ones to do that sometimes, when we want to look elsewhere and, and other people claim to be the ones to say, no, I'm the one who gets to define right and good. I'm the arbiter of truth. It is to our benefit that God alone holds a perfect standard. Again, it's an unpopular notion today, but part of the gospel, part of the good news of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus is that God judges sin. The other part of the good news is that God also saves us from sin and judgment. And so what's our response for those of us who believe that? It's it's like Moses to utterly rely on God when we can't when we can't do whatever it is. And then when we recognize God's work to declare among the nations what God has done. That's what Moses is doing in these chapters. Make sense? So Exodus 17 and 18 show us one side of godly judgment. They also show us the second side of godly judgment, and that is that God doesn't just oppose those who oppose his people. God also judges those. Sorry, God doesn't just judge those who oppose his people. He also judges those who oppose his holiness. Look down at verse 13 of Exodus 18. The next day, Moses sat down to judge the people. What's Moses doing? He's judging people. So again, like there's a place for godly judgment. It's part of Moses' job, apparently. The next day, Moses sat down to judge the people, and all the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. And when Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, saw that all he was doing for the people, Jethro said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to Jethro, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and the other, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. And Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. We're just going to pause there for a sec. Anyone's father-in-law? No, I'm just, we're not going to talk about it. <laughs> but there's this key role for, for anyone in any kind of leadership in most any kind of sense of the word, is, is that there's times when, when you're called to judge what's right and wrong. You're called to say, now here's what the authority says. You're called to, to say, this is the, the, the way to go. The rest of May on Sundays, and in the coming chapters of Exodus, as you read ahead week to week, it's going to dive into God's law. It's kind of the constitution and the, the bill of rights, if you will, for, for God's new nation, Israel. And so on one hand, Moses is God's human judge. But here, in this scene and through the rest of Exodus, Moses is not judging people by Moses' own standard. 
Moses is not judging people based on Moses' definition of right and wrong. Whose standard is he judging against? Who gets to define right and wrong? God. He says, they come and I tell them what God's will is. There's some caution here that we have to embrace of saying, when we decide that we get to decide what's right and wrong, we're putting ourselves in the place of God. There's, there's any, anyone who writes on this, on, on the division and on the different philosophies, um, it, it, this, there's this concept called relative moralism or subjective moralism. If I get to decide what's right for me and you get to decide what's right for you and you get to decide what's right for you and you get to decide what's right for you, who, who gets to define who's right or And even the most like secular, anti-faith writing on subjective moralism will come to some conclusion and say there has to be an authority above to define right and wrong. Because there's no other option unless we just are all at loggerheads with each other. And so every religion says, here's the higher authority. Every philosophy says, here's the higher authority. If it's between you and me, here's the third party. Or sometimes we just decide, no, I'm going to be the third party. Which is great until you decide you are, and then we go round and round and round again. Subjective morality doesn't work. So on one hand, God has appointed Moses to be the judge, but Moses is judging by God's standard. On the other hand... Jethro sees that Moses is just one person trying to judge all the disputes and navigate all the conflicts and meet all the needs across all of Israel. And he thinks this is unwise. But he doesn't just think it's unwise. He's willing to tell Moses so. And again, put yourself in family situations, put yourself in relational situations. Is that a risky thing to do? Or let me ask it more pointedly, Have you been in a relationship where you go, I don't know if that's wise. I'm not going to say anything. And of course we have. We all say yes. We've all been in that situation. Again, today we might see something unwise or sinful, but the question is, are we willing to follow Jethro's example and engage it? So Jethro says, what you are doing is not good. Here's, Here's what he says. Verse 18. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now, obey my voice. Again, like what would would someone around you say say if you said like, hey, obey my voice. (laughs) Obey my voice. I will give you advice and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases before God. And you shall warn them. He's like, do what you're doing already. You shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way which they must walk and what they must do. But moreover, look for able men, or some translations say just able people. Look for able people from among the people. Men who fear God, who are trustworthy, folks who hate bribes. Mm -hmm. And place such men over the people as chiefs of the thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. And let them do what? Let them judge the people at all times. Again, there's a place for godly judgment in and among our lives together. Let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they will bring to you, every small matter they will decide by themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. And if you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all the people will be able to go to their place in peace. They'll be able to receive judgment. Jethro, guys and ladies, is a great example for us. He's willing to speak into Moses' unwisdom. 
He's a good example. But look what else is true. Verse 24. Moses did what? Rebuked his father-in-law, told him, I'm the guy who brought everyone out of Egypt. No, no, no. Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. Jethro is a good example for us. Moses is also a good example for us. He's willing to listen to Jethro's advice. And in this relationship, we see the two sides of godly judgment, of the biblical form of judgment. So first, we can say, if you see a sister or brother objectively sinning, going against God's standard, not your preferences, but going against God's standard, or if you see someone you love doing something unwise, saying something unwise, you might be God's instrument to correct that person and bring them back. Even in, in Matthew 18, there's a process for, for church, church discipline. If a brother sins against a brother, go pursue that brother. If they don't come back, take somebody else with you. But at the end of each kind of step of that process, the goal is, quote, that you may gain a brother. The goal is reconciling them to God and reconciling them to you. Reconciling you to one another. You might be God's instrument to correct someone if you see them in sin, if you see them in unwisdom. But the other side of it is if you know someone who knows you, loves you, trusts you, or if there's someone who has some objective authority on a subject, and that person approaches you with a question or advice or even rebuke, could we be humble enough to be willing to listen as if we trust that they know us and love us and have our best interest in mind, or and or that they have some authority on the subject? Would we be willing to risk offering advice, and would we we be willing to be humble enough to receive? Judgment, in that view, is part of the Christian life. And so, at the end of this chapter, Moses appoints judges throughout Israel. It's a wise move. And again, he did it because he listened to Jethro's judgment of Moses' own actions. So don't miss this. Moses is still the leader. But now who has the authority to judge sin and wisdom among God's people? Other godly people in the everyday lives of God's people. If we fast forward to the New Testament, there's over a over hundred commands in the New Testament. They get labeled as the one another commands. Because God calls his people to engage deeply in each other's lives and engage deeply in each other's discipleship. This is the foundation of one of Salt and Light's values and priorities, which says everyone is discipled and everyone is discipling. What we long to see and what we want to equip you for and pray that God would do in us is that we would take ownership for each other's holistic growth as sisters and brothers in Christ. Anybody know any of the one another commands off the top of your head? Love one another. Love one another. It's a good one. Encourage one another. Outdo one another another in showing honor. It's the one time for the record in the New Testament that competition is commanded. It's not not a bad thing to compete over, trying to outdo one another in showing honor. Any others? 
Submit to one another. Yeah, I wondered if we get to any of the ugh, ones. Rebuke one another is also there. Any others? Pray. Pray for one another. Bear one another's burdens. My favorite, I think I mentioned before, says tolerate one another. It's like, all right. I might miss the other 99, but I think I can maybe most of the time <laughs> tolerate one another. The, and laced throughout all of these is some form of judgment. If you're exhorting one another, rebuking one another, submitting to one another, even bearing each other's burdens, there's something that we recognize in somebody else that says there's something needed here, and I can come alongside you and I can offer something to you. Or there's something that says I need something. I, I need encouragement. I can't do it alone. I need exhortation. I need someone to carry. Again, would we be willing to risk in order to offer judgment? Would we be willing to be humble in order to receive it. So let's not call each other to our standards. Let's not divide and rebuke people over personal preferences. Let's guard against the pendulum swinging too far. But, but church, if someone in your DNA is objectively sinning or if you question their wisdom, you're loving them well if you engage them. Not heavy-handedly. Love one another is like 20 of the 100 one another commands. Jesus was perfect grace and perfect truth, but we, we love another enough to engage in. That's, that's godly judgment. It's, it's similar in some ways to parents. It is Mother's Day after all, so we should acknowledge it. Like If your child is sinning or unwise, like it's your calling as a mom, it's your calling as a parent to, to judge that action, to judge that in wisdom, help them correct it, and help them see the consequences of it, because sin and wisdom has consequences. And on and on and on we could go. Bottom line, judgment is part of discipleship, because we might be used by God to shape each other. And judgment, as we're talking about it in this text, is part of the Christian life. Make sense? All right, let's close with an honest moment, though, in all this. We all fail God's standard. Like, God holds this perfect standard. We're going to see in the coming weeks what his law says. And at some point, we're going to be like, I should do the Soul of Shame book club this summer. Because we're all going to realize at some point, I don't, I, don't, I don't meet that standard. I fail. We all fail at God's standard. In the rest of the Old Testament, we'll see this. In our everyday lives, we know this. Israel sins. They're unwise. I sin. I'm unwise. You sin. You're unwise. We sin. We're unwise. None of us meet God's standard. And even part of our defensiveness when someone judges us or brings something to us or tries to love us enough to step into our lives, some of our defensiveness is we know we're imperfect, but man, we like to hide our imperfection. Accepting judgment is an admission that I'm imperfect. Even Moses was imperfect. But thousands of years after Exodus, God sent a better Savior to bring his people out of a deeper slavery. And that perfect Savior was named Jesus, and he was the perfect judge because he alone lived up to God's standard and lived among God's people, and he was a perfect example of God's perfect standard. But Jesus is also the one who's going to one day judge everyone who's ever walked the face of the earth based on God's standard. In fact, here's just a slew of verses that reference this. He, Jesus, will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses 
He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. The Father judges no one. This is the book of John, but has given all judgment to the Son. Later in Romans, Paul writes as part of his argument, this is just a phrase, but on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, in Revelation says, I saw the heaven opened and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, Jesus judges and makes war. God opposes those who oppose his people. God opposes those who oppose his holiness. And y'all, verses like that would be terrifying. But Jesus, our perfect judge, is also our perfect savior who took all of God's judgment for your sin, for your unwisdom, for your imperfection on himself. Again, part of the gospel, part of the good news is that God judges sin. The other part of the gospel, the other part of the good news is that God saves us from sin and judgment. Amen? This is what we remember as we take communion. So there's, there's elements on your table. This is a, a meal we celebrate every week when we gather at Salt and Light. Uh, it's a meal that Jesus gave us on the night before he went to his death. And why did he go to his death? He went to his death because we all fail to meet God's standard. And so for anyone who follows Jesus, this is a meal that you're invited to as we remember and declare the good news that even though we deserve God's judgment, we're also freed from God's judgment. If you need gluten-free options, there, there's some on the, uh, the entry table. Um, but however you take it, We're going to receive this as good news because it's by God's death, by Jesus' death and by Jesus' resurrection that we can trust that all of our sin has been forgiven and that he is now given us his righteousness. So take the bread and you can dip it into the wine or the juice. The juice is the light-colored liquid. And we remember this is Jesus' body broken for you. And this is Jesus' blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins in which he took the judgment that you deserved. Take and eat. Father, I thank you for the good news as hard as it is that you are a judge. Thank you that you and you alone have a perfect standard. It gives you the right to be God that you and you alone are perfect. Thank you for being the higher authority who gets to be the arbiter of right and wrong and truth and falsehood. Would you help us to see you as such? Would you help us to celebrate it, as Jethro and Moses did, that you are a rightful judge? And God, would you also cause us to be even more grateful for the fact that though you are a perfect judge and have a perfect standard that none of us can meet, you've also met us in our imperfection and forgiven us and drawn us to you by the blood of your Son. We thank you for the good news. We thank you for Jesus. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.